From Carry the Load, these are Lessons from the Front. Stories of service and sacrifice from our military, veterans, first responders, and their families. If you're into war stories and leadership tales, this is the episode for you. Scott Houston commanded a company of Marines in Ramadi, Iraq, which turned out to be some of the most hellacious fighting during the 20 years war. In Ramadi, it wasn't a question of if they were going to make contact with the enemy, but when. Husing authored his account in a book titled Echo and Ramadi, and I have to tell you that I would have given this more than five stars if I could have. He talks plenty about the battles, but it's the human side to war that makes this book so special. Please remember to like, share, review, and subscribe so these stories and journeys of America's protectors will find their way to more people. I'm your host, Todd Boating, and I welcome you to my conversation with retired Marine Scott Husing. So, Echo and Ramadi, I have to tell you that if I could have given it an extra star or two, mm. I would have. And I know what, why that resonated with me, but I want to hear from you, why do you feel that that resonated with me and others the way it did? I wrote that book to honor the sacrifices of the young Marines and and families that supported us while we fought and that still support us this day. The people that I wrote about in that story in Echo and Ramadi were really emblematic of the type of leadership at every level, not mine, at every level, from the young 19, 20-year-old Lance Corporals that had already fought in Ramadi in 2004 and then back 24 months later in 06. I, I think that you and other military people absolutely understand the components and the, that type of friction that I describe in, in detail in, in the book as a, from a historical perspective, which was also important to me, Marines and soldiers, that battle absolutely had to be captured. Mm -hmm. That was one of the bloodiest periods of fighting throughout the entire war. It redefined what fighting was for us as Marines five, six, seven times a day in direct contact with a very well-trained insurgent force. So anybody that fought in any city can understand that. And I think maybe I started thinking of those Marines that I led. That's why I devoted so much of my life to writing this book. But honestly, as it evolves when you're working on a project of that nature or any story, I think now the goal was really to write this story for the other 99%, not for the Marines. They got it. It's really become this lens that other people look through to see the immense sacrifice and service of these young men and women who a year before that they were playing high school football. And then we put them through this amazing sausage grinder of training and we crank out the best product in the world in the Marines, and we thrust them into these life-changing, life-and-death situations, in, in Ramadi especially, and the way they perform is unbelievable. And as a leader, you, you hope that that type of training has filtered down. That's our goal, obviously, in a decentralized model, but 
those Marines at every level were, you know, from the junior enlisted to the senior enlisted to the lieutenants who had never been to combat before. I think that, you know, ultimately when I wrote that story, it just became something else. It, it, it may fall under the category of military history or a memoir, but really it's a book about people. It's a book about human connection, and that's what it's become. How, my, my question to you would be, how did you zero in on that human element? Did, was it by chance? Was it something that you, did you go into that starting out, I got to get the human element across? And I'm going to talk specifically about fighting in Ramadi, Iraq in 06, 07, mm -hmm. which again was some of the bloodiest fighting that we had. It was day on, stay on. It wasn't a matter of if, but when we were going to get engaged. And the resident knowledge from these young Marines, these guys like uh, Sergeant Espinosa, Jonathan Espinosa, who I write about, who got shot uh, by a sniper, he was this salty seasoned sergeant that the Marines just feared. They feared this guy and he didn't talk a lot, but he said a lot. And yes. he was 21. And a 21 year old sergeant yeah. in the infantry for people who don't understand that yeah. is a seasoned guy. Yep. Just, just barely old enough to drink beer legally. And the amount of responsibility and the weight and the pressure being cognizant of the fact that I had to listen to guys like that so we would be able to survive. And a lot of people will ask me a question, how did you deal with that? How did you compartmentalize that? How did you apply this? How did you maneuver and do all these things? I think we do it as the training kicks in, but it's also a humanistic nature to survive. I, I mean, we're running around the city completely surrounded. Every corner could have a, a, a surface laid bomb that could blow up and explode or there's a sniper or a team of insurgents. So you're in survival mode. So all the other stuff about worrying about the little things, they tend to fade away pretty fast. The training kicks in and then the basic human element of love for your fellow Marine. I think that is probably one of the characteristics that kicks in the most. It's I tribal. Mean, we, we are. Uh, and, and also, yeah, I don't ever like to sugarcoat it, too, because when you're leading 250 Marines and soldiers around the deadliest city and you've got everything at your disposal, I mean, these, these guys are killers. Uh, and we never looked at how we were fighting in that city from winning or losing about how many bad guys we kill, and there was plenty of, of that to go around. But for me as a leader listening to those young Marines and making sure that we brought as many guys home alive. That was that I say it time and again, it's like that is really the only metric of success we had because at, at our level, we weren't getting a lot of guidance from general officers or even senior field grade officers about what winning was. I think we could dissect 22 years of war, both in Iraq and Afghanistan and really as a soldier at the ground at the tactical level, not understand what winning was. The politicians that didn't define it, our senior leaders, and, and the veterans and the leaders at the tactical level, at that ground level, that were making daily decisions that were life and death decisions. I'll tell anybody listening to this, and I hope there's a bunch of veterans, they're all winners. They all won. There was nothing lost at that level. We were fighting for one another, gaining ground, house by house, door to door, street by street. And at the end of the day, we 
had really turned the tide of the war mm -hmm. in that city. As your book pointed out, the human element at the end of the day, that, I mean, people is the one common denominator. People are the one common denominator in every business and everything we do in life. I don't care if you're selling widgets. I don't care if you're selling dog food. It's to benefit people when it's all said and done. And so saying all of that to go back to the one powerful story that stood out to me more than anything else, and I can't remember his name, but you had a Lance Corporal on patrol who just all of a sudden y'all lost him. Now, you know, as, a, as an infantry leader, I mean, I know exactly where I'm looking, um, but, you know, as to why it happened. However, it, it drove home the human element side of things to me that he just needed tell the story because god that was powerful I'm trying, for me. I'm trying to remember the the, the okay. marine's name but I remember it was start with a b it was Brian McKibben McKibben there you go Bracamonte I think okay. was the marine okay. and uh but Brian Brian was one of my squad leaders and they were out on patrol in in Ramadi or, or Rupa and he turns around takes a security halt and he's missing one man and that's a bad feeling when you're yes. in a densely populated urban environment where there's a lot of fighting going on and he stops the patrol and he goes back and with little investigation finds him and it's Bracamani sitting there talking to some kid on the side of the street probably handing him some candy he had in his pocket and I'm sure Brian laced into this kid like there's no tomorrow and just wore him out because he was scared like a parent Yes, and again, Brian Corporal McKibben at the time, uh, you know, probably you know, 24. He was a little older than the average bear, as corporals go, but still had that fatherly instinct. I think he was a dad already at that point. And as Brian explained it to me, you know, I really wanted to feel human, probably because he had little brothers or or cousins. Anybody can relate to that. And in war, kids are everywhere. I I, I think what we see on TV is. It's always the kid getting shot or something horrific like that. But there's so much beautiful stuff that happens as well. And it's two people from two different cultures, don't speak the same language, different generations. And there was a connection. There was something beautiful about that kid just taking time to stop and making himself feel better at the same time. But Brian was obviously and rightfully so worried about where his Marine was. No. And, and honestly, the way you just described it again, that's the way I, I interpreted it. You know, the, the squad leader, um, was like a parent. He was more scared than anything else. And not for himself, not because he was going to get in trouble, but because I've got somebody here that I'm responsible for. And they, they scared me that they weren't there. And then number two I wrote, I literally wrote down the need to feel human just as the way you described it. And because that's, that's what I took away is that he just, here he is, Racamonte in this, in this just maddening world. And all of a sudden, oh, there's reality, a child's smile. I mean, that, that just, it gives me goosebumps. It really does. And I, I think that as well as, the way you portrayed some of your own shortfalls really attracted me to the story and specifically the humility. When you lost your weapon, I could, I mean, I was like, wow, he put that in there. That's, that's golden. Well, how many people have 
left their weapon somewhere. Every, but not but, a lot of people will admit it though. It, it was it wasn't funny to me at the time. <laughs> I, it was a freak out moment, and um, I had been ordered to go back to Camp Ramadi, which is this bustling camp of every flavors star wars cantina everybody and their brothers roaming around there civilians army marines and they have a massive dining facility and what was interesting about this one was there was a huge piece of probably four by six plywood up and it was staked into the ground and it had instructions that you had to fill sandbags before you went into the dining facility so you went through the gate then there's this big billboard, and it says something ridiculous that galled us as well. That said, "Do it for them." Something like it had this. It smacked of this World War II savings bond thing, you know. Buy them for them. <laughs> the, the the grunts slogging it out in the trenches. So all of the rear echelon people who were doing their part, love them. Truck drivers, mechanics, administrators, pilots. They had to fill ten sandbags before every meal. For them, them being me, the grunts, the guys out kicking doors in a Ramadi and killing Go do this guys. for yourself. Yeah. So now I'm thinking, I'm filling my own sandbags. And hold, hold on a second. I put in a request weeks ago to get more sandbags driven out to my positions. No sandbags. So I begrudgingly. That's, that's how they're solving the problem. Yeah. <laughs> so I begrudgingly fill my sandbags. And, and in the process, you know, I'm probably three days sleep deprived haven't eaten a solid meal in weeks. I go in, show my ID card, grab my tray of food. So excited. I don't know what it was. Probably Baskin Robbins ice cream and pizza. And I sit down at the table and I instinctively reach to my right side to sweep my weapon around to stick it between my legs that was clipped to my body armor. And I sweep, I sweep again, no rifle. It's missing. I Drop my tray on the table. I raced back to the front where I gave my ID card, and I talked to this soldier who was a corporal or a sergeant. I said, Sergeant, I left my – and he cuts me off. And he goes, just give me your serial number, sir. It happens all the time. So I left my rifle sitting down by the sandbag pile that I was filling, and I guess it must happen all the time because I look behind the sergeant. There's about four or five rifles back there. Oh, my gosh. So – I was uh, a little humbled that day, but it's a cardinal sin to not be within one arm's length of your rifle. And I wasn't at the time, but I was just so frayed out in that moment. I. How do you address that when one of your Marines does it and you know you've done it? I apply the human factor to it. I think if, Everybody deserves chances. God knows I've been given more than my share of second chances in my career, in friendships, relationships. I'm grateful for it. So I always try to apply that as a leader and not just look at the incident, look at the, the person and then really bring in their direct leaders, the non-commissioned officers that really have their finger on the pulse of the character of these young men. Because Let's face it, you don't know everybody at the nth detail at every level. So you said that a lot of the book that you wrote was really, it came from the research you did after the fact. What is an example of one of the stories that you didn't have to, to pull from research, you pulled from memory 
that was really impactful to you? Um, the first chapter of the phone call was one that was very personal to me. Um, and to have to share that too was, I think, I knew I knew it was going to be emotional for me to share that, and every time I have to pick that scab up, man, it, it it's a lot. But again, it, writing to the parents of a, a Marine that just got killed, he was twenty two years old. That's tough. Um, but I also thought they deserved a phone call, and I went out of my way once I knew that they had been notified and 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 made that conscious decision to call back to Maine and talk to the Libbies and. Just let them hear my voice. And when you're surrounded by so much going on, I mean, to even find the time to make a simple phone call is pretty complicated. It, all of the little things we take for granted are, are just that much tougher. And then it wasn't really until the end of the book when I was sharing Simon's story, Simon Litke, that I really felt I, I have to share more of myself and to do that that's pretty tough but you owe it as an artist as a writer and I think as a leader to really share some of those failures and the things that you struggle in life and to, to barf that into 300 pages and and put it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble for everybody to read and that was a point in my life where I, I was struggling personally we had a lot of suicide we had guys just killing themselves left and right. And I was like, what is the problem going on here? And I thought, I'm going to wind up being one of those guys too if I, if I continue down this path. Uh, masking it and, and always telling myself that I was in control and I was still being effective as a leader and, and doing all the things I needed to do um, in my daily life and in work and being productive. But I was also seeing this pattern that was extremely destructive. And when you're in those waters surrounded by people who are just drowning all the time, you think, man, everybody's going to, everybody's going to go down. It wasn't the case though. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that was also really beautiful about sharing so many of those personal stories from me, but also pulling those stories from so many people that shared was it also thrust me into a lo what takes up a lot of my time now, not just as a writer, but as the executive director of Save the Brave and helping veterans who are struggling with post-traumatic stress. I absolutely encourage people to get this book because those two stories, right, you know, that you referenced, I remember them clear as day. And I don't remember everything I read, but I remember those very clearly because of the, the things that you mentioned. So I want to encourage everybody to go get that. But I do want to talk about one other thing in the book, and that was in regard to um, the, the New Mexico Marine, that tribe that was out there. Because to us in, in the, the carry the load world, tribe is, is a much more powerful word than any family word could ever evoke. Tell me about your experience when you went out there and what you witnessed in that group of people that's, that the rest of society can learn from? Emilian Sanchez was one of my Marines that was, was killed in Rutba. And 
young kid, but came from a Native American tribe, a Karis Indian, um, and just outside of Albuquerque. Little, there's a little pueblo called Santa Ana. And when we came back from that deployment, we had floated across uh, on amphibious shipping. So it was kind of nice, too, because a lot of the Marines had this built-in decompression cycle instead of guys who fly back from war, and then it's life 101. We at least had that. But when we came back, it also gave the battalion and the regiment time to set up a welcome home party for us in San Clemente, our adopted city in California. And it was an amazing reception. And what was also great about it was all of the families of the Marines we lost showed up. And it was, I, I wrote about the reception too. And, um, you know, you talk about losing Marines and people dying and people killing themselves from suicide. It's tough. It, it's, it's wrenching, but I, it makes me smile when I think back to that day on the beach. Um, I say smile, but it, it's, it's emotional. There was, I don't know how many people from the tribe came out, but they're all wearing Sanchez t-shirts, these white t-shirts. And there's like a platoon of these, uh, family supporters and the friends they're all wearing Emilian Sanchez t-shirts with his face on it and it was really overwhelming to to experience that and so I met his his and mom they, they were there but their son was not they were there but their son was not and they brought they drove out from from New Mexico which is a good eight hour drive easy to where we were at and so I met Dave and Jenny, his mom and dad, and his brother Joey, and we're still longtime friends and uh, keep in touch. But Joey, who was much older than Emilian, and everyone called him Sancho, but his brother could have been his dad, and he got mistaken for that. And he shared that story with me. But anyway, Joey invites me out for their annual celebration at um, St. Anne's that they do on the Pueblo, which is this austere... Indian reservation, no power, everything's on generators, but they had this huge celebration, big Catholic celebration, and it's a religious ceremony, and it, it was so overwhelming. I mean, the, the native dancing, the food, Jenny and Dave and the whole family, everybody's taking care of me and introduced, like, this is a millions major, and this is, she, that's how she introduced me, even though I was a captain at the time. Um, really fawning over well, me. Well, thank and, you for the and, promotion. Yeah, yeah and showing me uh, every, this little shrine they had to Sancho, and it was just really cool. And the scenery and just everything was so over, overwhelming. You, you know, that's that story is, is one that's heartwarming, too, in the book. And there, the, the book, I think, is balanced with there's tough parts right out of the chute. I, I've got guys like you that are battle-hardened Marines, they'll say, hey, thanks for making me read your book, man. I was crying after the first chapter, and big, tough Marines. I'm like, yeah, suck it up, get some Kleenex. But there's also the funny stuff that people do and under tough circumstances and, and overcoming adversity and obviously the leadership aspects, but there's the action parts too, and there's the, the human parts. I think that that's really what resonates with people the other 99%, when I get an email or something from a nurse in West Virginia, some random stranger that hits me up through my website and thanks me for writing that and sharing those stories with her because she never would have had that type of education. And then at the end of the email, I think, this is a true story. She wrote something. P.S. 
my daughter's marrying a Marine. I wanted to respond back so badly, but I didn't know what What would you have said? I'm not giving advice. I don't give relationship (laughs) advice. So So I want to ask you a a very difficult question Um, because I think that that it's it's very important. You know, you talked about, you know, whenever you pick at that scab, it it, it can be kind of difficult. But can you zero in on a day Maybe you wrote about it. Maybe you didn't. A day that you don't ever want to relive again. But more importantly, what can others learn from that day so that they don't have to experience the same thing? I got a long list of days that I don't want to relive. But I've I've moved on from those. I don't don't think forgetting about those hard days uh, serves me. I don't dwell on them. Like I was just saying, is I don't, I don't want to live in misery. I don't want to constantly churn up the past. And those days that are, are difficult for me that I wouldn't want anyone else to have to relive, um, pick any day in combat. I, I mean, even with the, the good that comes out of it, there's, you know, it's a, it's a horrible thing to see. Um, it, it's, it's tough to not see marines um die is one thing but to see them struggle like a parent you never want that and when you can't fix it that's even harder when you think about the impact of your words and of your stories what is it can you condense it into one lesson that you want people to walk away with and say from my experiences Here's what I, I'm asking you. Here's what I'm begging you to learn so that we can take care of all these people who make up this country. I have not written a thesis statement for you on the culmination of all the leadership lessons. That's a good one, though. I'm working with another author, uh, and we're in a discussion with a, a, a person that wants to get behind the work and the project, and one of his teammates was a former CIA intel analyst, and she, she says, so what's the thesis of the book, or what's the, the gist of the book? So I'm sitting there as he's telling one story about this, about this dog going to the bathroom in a combat operations center in the back of the vehicle. I'm sitting here writing in the Zoom call a thesis statement, and I'm, writing, I'm thinking, well, what is this? It's a really great question of what you tell people I mean, how long would it be? Are we talking like a bumper sticker? Yeah, I love that. What's my bumper sticker? Put put it into uh, put it on a t-shirt. Uh, my, put it on a headline. My 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 t-shirt is is something I've already written. This is an original, but I always tell people in every organization there's no such thing as combat leadership, just leadership. Mm. It's just like I was talking about democracy. There's no such thing as American democracy or French. It's just democracy. It's just leadership. You either lead. Or you follow and take notes. And there's nothing wrong with that either. Because your time to lead Absolutely. will come. Absolutely. As as you alluded to earlier, Carry the Load is is about restoring the true meaning of Memorial Day and making sure that we honor those people who never got to take off the uniform. You and I were fortunate enough where we were able to come home to our families. I want to know who you're carrying today. Who's, whose memory are we going to keep alive today? I'll... Th- I'll carry Corporal Libby because 
Today's December 2nd, 2022, and Libby got killed December 6th, 2006. So time flies, uh, but his, his memory goes on. Uh, that kid's name is still mentioned every time there's a gathering in California at Bastard's Canteen or a two, four reunion, or, you know, I get invited back out to Maine. We've, we've done hikes where his ashes are scattered, but Corporal Libby was one of those guys who was not a ninja. He was quite kid, but he was 22 years old and was doing what good Marines do leading from the front in the fight, slinging lead with the enemy that night and, uh, was shot and killed. And, through that loss, his mom and his dad and his brother and his sister-in-law were all still connected. And, and I think that when you do carry that, I, I carry it with a happy heart. man. I, I rode through the country again last year when I'm in South Carolina. Guess who's there at the finish line? Chris Libby, his brother. Every year, anytime I'm on the East Coast, he shows up and – they don't have to do that because a lot of our Gold Star families, uh, when they lose so much, uh, they sacrifice so much, it's tough. It's tough for them sometimes to to stay connected because it does keep that memory alive and some of them want to move past that. And, and we respect that. But there's so many out there that we're, we're tied into in the, the, our Gold Star families that they they feel like they may have lost – you know their son or their brother, but they gained another 200 uh, sons that they they didn't expect in most cases. But I think it works both ways because yes. that type of um, connection and that 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 family bond that you have through those circumstances, I think, is very unique. It's it's much much different than your regular siblings and your families or your kids and anything like that. It's just different because they're they're the worst things in life. But again so many beautiful things are born from it. And since that day on, on December 6th, so much more has transpired that has not only kept me going, inspired me to share my story, but the other thing, and I'll, I'll leave it at this is it's, it's about the, not just about the importance of writing and communicating or doing whatever you're great at is that, Hopefully, you're going to inspire someone else along the way to do the same thing. That's where I sit today as somebody that is not only doing what I'm I'm loving in life, but helping others, not just in the nonprofit sector, but other veteran artists as yes. well, and, and helping propel their careers, uh, I think, is something you just learn along the way. I never thought I'd be at that point, but I enjoy it. What else, What will I be doing in the next five years? I've got it written down. We'll see. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing about uh, Corporal Libby. I appreciate that. And uh, this has been a pleasure. This has been an absolute pleasure. You, uh, you know, it, it, we didn't even, there were so many things I wanted to talk about that we didn't get uh, to go into, but I've got a plan for that too. So thanks right, very much for being well, here. Well, thanks for having me. All right, brother. If this resonated with you in the least, please subscribe and like, and please, please, please share it with at least one person. 
These are the stories that make us uniquely American. These are the stories that preserve the integrity of our nation.